on the line to me somewhere in the United States, I'm not entirely sure where, is Adam Kokesh. Have I pronounced that right, Adam? Kokesh? Kokesh? Kokesh. Good stuff. Just don't say Koresh or Kokesh and we're good. Yeah, Kokesh, Kokesh. Even in my family, we're not completely sure. Very good. And what is that? Is that a Russian name, is it? You know, it's, it's actually a fun little story behind that name. It was originally Kokeshia. And it was instead of just S-H at the end right now, it's K-O-K-E-S-H. It was instead of the S-H, S-C-H-E-I-A. And in Old Bavarian, that's a diminutive suffix. And you know, the, the, the term Coke, you think like coal, right? And it was the blacksmith, Little Blacksmith was the original name. My dad is two inches shorter than me and that much wider than me. And his dad was two inches shorter and that much. So you can imagine a few generations back, little old blacksmith, about dude about as wide as he was tall. I'm the diluted version of the genes now, but the name was shortened, uh, Americanized on Ellis Island. So Kokesh is now just a funny American way of saying Smith. So you call sure. me Adam Smith if you want, although he was wrong about a lot of things. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take the compliment to, for, to be associated with that intellectual pioneer of economics. That's a very interesting question. What was Adam Smith wrong about? The labor theory of value, primarily. There were a lot of little things in his economic analysis that have since been proven incorrect. But the labor theory of value as opposed to the subjective theory of value. Subjective theory of value that, that is the correct that describes economic reality is that something is worth what someone will pay for it. What Adam Smith surmised, and I, and I don't mean to you know, uh, discredit, I mean, I, I, I don't mean to like highlight his one big flaw, you know, uh, but it, it is important to show that he put forth an economic model that very much advanced humanity's understanding of economics in the wealth of nations is his is most prominent and famous work and a very important one to the advancement of economics uh, understanding for humanity as a whole. But uh, the labor theory of value says that something has value based on how much work time goes into it. And, uh, Anybody who's had a bad sexual experience with an enthusiastic partner can say that is definitely not the case. You know, I, you know, that's a crude example, but you know, just because someone works a lot on something doesn't necessarily give it value. And that, that actually, uh, you know, was, was a serious misunderstanding that is sometimes, you know, misapplied today. That, but that wasn't like his primary, Right, this primary advancement in the understanding was the, the, the development of the concept of the invisible hand of, of uh, you know, the supply and demand and, and directing, uh, you know, uh, directing value by those mechanisms in the market. And, and he was the first that used the term, uh, at least the, the famously, uh, the invisible hand and, and described that uh, in, in a very important way. Um, I am proud to say that not a month ago, these very hands touched the very first edition of Wealth of Nations in mm. the room that he finished writing it in. How about that? Mm. In, in Panmure House in Edinburgh, where he lived the last 12 years of his life. Um, he's got some that's, great that's, quotes. That's, that's a, no, sorry, you know, we're, yeah, I, I'm like, we are, we are uh, nerds of the same, nerds of a feather, if you will. Like there are very <laughs> few people, like even like, even history buffs, you go, oh, we're going we're to go to Adam Smith's office, <laughs> you know, like, and I'm like, 
Yeah, yeah. That's like I'm, and I'm not sentimental at all. You know, uh, I'm, I'm. I shouldn't say at all. Um, I mean, I'm sitting in in a trailer, an RV that I toured in, that's covered in signatures of all of our fans of freedom. But yeah, I could, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would, I would geek out on the first edition of Wealth of Nations, absolutely. Yeah. Well, he. I think it was. I think the six. It took him six editions before, like the first definitive version. But yeah, he wrote it. Um. But the first one, but it's there's some great Adam Smith quotes. Let me fire a couple of Adam Smith quotes at you. Um, because I, I know all this because I did a show at the Edinburgh Festival last year all about how, like, you know, how the arts, comedy, and and theater and music and everything is really kind of left wing and really status. But the curious, um, uh, I don't even know what the word is, the curious anomaly of the existence of the artist is that an artist's life, a comedian's life in particular, is about the single most libertarian existence you can possibly have. Uh, because, you know, particularly comedy, there's no state intervention of comedy. You live or die by your own merits. Um, you know, you use everything that nature gave you to your advantage. If you've actually got something wrong with you in inverted commas, you know, something weird about you or odd about you, it's actually an advantage in comedy because it gives right. you a unique yeah. self. And, and, you know, and yet at the same time, there's incredible camaraderie between comedians, even though every single comedian is acting out of his own self-interest. And so I did this show last year. Um, uh, it was a lecture in the Edinburgh Festival all about how un unexpectedly the philosophies of Adam Smith manifested themselves in the Edinburgh Festival. And I don't know if you, I don't know how much you know. It's a weird thing, the Edinburgh Festival, because it's the biggest arts festival in the world. And it sells more tickets than the Olymp uh, than every other event in the world except the Olympic Games. That's the only event that sells more tickets. And the the Olympic Games is every four years. And if you think of a you know the Olympic Games or the World Cup or a great sporting event, it's all televised, and everyone watches the World Cup final or the 100 meters final. So everyone in the world has a realization of how big it is. But in the Edinburgh Festival, because it's just millions and millions of tiny little shows, nobody realizes quite what a big event it is, but it sells 4 million tickets, 4 million, sorry, 4 million visitors come to Edinburgh. And um, there's 185 countries in the world. And last year there were visitors from 157 different countries. So 80% of the world's countries represented. So it's this fantastic arts festival. And it all started completely by accident in that there was this chap called Rudolf Bing, who was a, a Jewish guy who'd escaped the Nazis in Austria. And he, he came to the UK, he was a conductor. Uh, and he tried to put on, um, he had this idea of putting on a festival and he raised all this subsidy and, and his friend who was a Lord gave him some money and he put on this festival and it had like Glyndebourne Opera, um, uh, Sadler's Wells Ballet, the Vienna Philharmonic, all these highbrow names. And they were like all these socialist theatre groups from Glasgow and there was a puppeteer from the north of England and they all said, we want to come and perform at this festival. And Bing said, no, you're not good enough. And so they weren't allowed into the festival, but they came along and performed anyway. In like one guy did his show in the room above a restaurant and another guy did his um, show in the YMCA and all these guys, and they were known as the Uninvited nice. Eight. And it started with just eight groups in 1947. And it gradually grew and grew every year, more and more of them came until the fringe, 
eclipsed the main fest festival mm -hmm. and the Fringe has just gone on to become the biggest arts festival in the world. And it was completely unplanned, completely, everyone just going there because they all want to get recognized and become the next big thing. You know, everyone acting out of their own self-interest. Um, hence the Adam Smith thing. And uh, you know, no subsidy, no intervention, nothing. And it's become the biggest arts festival in the world. And it's, the, it's like the most compelling argument in favor of free market economics. And yet the irony is every single person, bar about three, who participates in the, uh, in the um, Edinburgh Festival is kind of loony left statist, you know, so that's the great irony of it. But, and, and that's, that's how I came to be fingering the copy of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations a month ago. So a long-winded story, but we got there in the end. Oh man, I, I, there's, so you, there's so much I can respond to in that if you, if, if you, if you don't mind. I mean, the, when you say it's the most compelling argument for free market economics, I mean, I don't, I don't want to disagree that it's a powerful positive thing, but I, I want for anybody who's watching, who, you know, has a different definition or understanding of that. I, I really want to kind of lay the groundwork. And I don't know, you know, maybe you agree with me on this, maybe you don't, but you know, I, I look at it from the flip side, which you triggered. I mean, I'm, I'm a veteran. I was in the Marine Corps. Uh, I was in, in combat in, in Fallujah in Iraq in 2004. And so you say, what's, you know, what's, what's the, greatest argument for free market economics i think it's where you have the least freedom it's war you know where where violence is being used to take lives to take the, the totality of your current and future freedom you know and, and that that is the obviously in, in all of human experience the most destructive thing that, that that we do that we have experienced i mean yeah you can argue plagues and not corona though uh but you can argue you know the bubonic plague uh the things you your Europeans would be more familiar with, like the, the the Spanish and the Italian and those those you know making a big deal out of this right now, but that there is uh, to to take it as that you go well. What is the definition of a free market? And it's a it's a system or an area or a group where people are not subject to violence in their exercising of their rights and in particular in economics their property rights but everything can be seen through the lens of property rights you know i believe that i own myself that you as a free beautiful independent human being you own yourself and that this idea of self-ownership is the foundation of ethics it's wrong to hit you to steal from you to murder you because i'm violating that self-ownership and it suggests an ethical framework of voluntarism which is the foundational philosophy of libertarianism the idea that all human relationships should be voluntary so to your point and i know you kind of want to bring it back to this or i think the idea that the art community trends liberal despite having this beautiful phenomena of freedom it's like well yeah that's that's where we've come in terms of you know, you, human, economic, human, human propaganda and understanding of government and violence, the governments will use all of this delusion and, and all of these lies to get you to support coercive policies. You know, maybe not as extreme as war, but taxation is theft. It's still an unethical violation. To lock you in a cage for smoking a plant that government doesn't like, or more accurately, their corporate sponsors or special interests don't like, you know, they're having... They, they are making the criminal act in those cases. 
And so, of course, they want to, you know, propagandize people to accept things like taxation and regulation, and most importantly, fiat currencies and central banks is the main mode of, ex of exploitation. So, you know, I, I, I want to celebrate this, you know, like people have always had delusions and fantasies and mythologies and religions to fill the voids of things they cannot understand. And now statism is by far the biggest religion in the world, even in the United States. You call yourself a Christian because you go to church once a week and you give the church 10% of your income. Well, what does it say if you go to a job under the American flag, you pledge allegiance every day? I know that's not as common as working and paying taxes, which is more important because the average working American is paying half of what they make to government when you add up all the hidden costs of government. You go, well, gee, they, government is the God you worship. And, and, and for a lot of people, it means they fill in what they do not understand about economics with propaganda. And I would say that's uh, most of the left, which includes the Republican Party in the U.S. <laughs> and the Conservative Party in the U.K. Um, shall I tell you why I think... Um, uh, statism has replaced religion and that's yeah. because until 1914 this um, healthcare welfare education were mostly provided by the church and uh, it was, you know the first world war just before was a huge kind of trend change and especially the second world war but as the as the 20th century unfolded all those things were no longer provided by the church and they were provided by the state. And, people, and, and, and I'm sure that the fact that the state is the provider of these things is, is, is somehow connected with this worship of statism. Oh, we have absolutely. this worship of the NHS. Yeah. Yeah, this is a worthwhile topic to tease out. I'm, I'm, I'm not at all questioning your historical observation of these trends or that they are related no, I, we just just we have the nhs in the uk which is like and and both left and right have described it as a religion and it is you know and and, and woe betide any heretic who dares speak ill of the nhs but i think your nhs is your military like, woe betide anyone who speaks ill of your military. Is that right? Like, I mean, I've found it yeah. amazing in America when I, I go to, like, airports and a soldier walks past and everyone claps him. I'm just like, what? Y you know, uh, anyway, go on, carry on. No, I, yeah, you're absolutely right, and I hadn't really considered that, but I think it's worthwhile teasing apart that historical relationship. And I think a lot of scholars have done, <coughs> excuse me, some pretty important work in this regard uh, that, that really needs to be synthesized into, into a clear narrative of the relationship between uh, or, or the role of the state as having displaced religion and society and certainly taking over a lot of the social functions in that sense. They, they, the state beat the church, you know, in terms of competing for being the organization of authority and control of resources, right? And, and as sort of as a, you know, mechanism of violent control, it is History has shown, you know, that this the, the mechanism of the state is more effective than the mechanism of religion as a tool of controlling people. But obviously, religion 
has always been used as a tool of controlling people very much by the state. And now the state maybe has even absorbed that function by absorbing a lot of those specific sort of community service functions. And you're absolutely right in the United States. It is, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to think that, you know, I, I, I don't want to be too optimistic here, right? But I, I would like to think that we're kind of getting over the worshiping element of militarism. Um, my friend, so my, when I was running uh, for the Libertarian nomination for president, and by the way, I'm happy to support the woman who beat me in that nominating contest, Joe Jorgensen, 2020 over Trump, Biden, any day of the week. But uh, when, I, when I was running for the nomination, my campaign manager was also a veteran. His name was Elijah. And his brother had gotten him a T-shirt that says, support the troops in huge letters. And then underneath, except Elijah, that guy's a dick. And it's like, uh, yeah, you know, you can laugh at something like that, but it, it really, like, yeah, you can wear, I mean, even in a sort of tongue-in-cheek way, you could, you could joke about stuff like that. One of the things that is unraveling for the U.S. military is the unquestioning politicization of the NFL and other pro sports with national anthems, but particularly the NFL with the color guards and the flag, you know, they bring the huge American flag yeah. out. And yeah, there's, there's, and the a, there's whole a taking the knee thing. Yes. But that's, see that that's the positive thing is that I think that's, and, and actually uh, one of the stories I covered on my show last week was that, you know, now most Americans view kneeling during the anthem as an you know, acceptable form of protest. And it's crazy like that. I, I, I got to hand it to Colin Kaepernick, the 49ers quarterback who, who kicked that thing off, you know, as a very, yeah. and at first, at first I was kind of critical of him and, and I'm not like he shouldn't be doing it. Not like these assholes coming out like, how dare you know, but like, the, like have a more specific message. Like I watched his interview after he did it the first time. And I was like, uh, that, that was kind of weak. You know, you don't, you don't, you don't really have uh, a, a, a very strong message there. And, and that was kind of disappointing. But now, in hindsight, I can kind of see the genius in, in what he did in making kneeling during the anthem such a powerful statement. And one that you can say, yeah, I'm not okay with the state of things in America, and I'm doing it because of this. And the way it's kind of been connected to Black Lives Matter, I think it's a great way of, of just challenging, you know, patriotism as this you know, bullshit question, your bullshit concept of unquestioning, uh, you know, an unquestioning attitude towards authority. And you're like, no, we're going to, we're going to question things. We're going to, we're going to stand, you know, and now we've come to the point where it's, it's the weird thing. If you don't kneel, uh, it was the pitcher, uh, what's his name? Coonrod with, uh, ugh, I don't know sports. I just saw this in the news, you know, I cover this from yeah. the socio-political perspective, not the you know, athletic fan perspective um, I, I, and with I, football. I, yeah, I was just going to say, every um, year they have one NFL game in Wembley in London. And, and I went to see a game, and it would have been two years ago. And I can't even remember who was playing. Was it, would it be the Chicago Bulls? Are they a team? That's basketball. Are they in uh, See, you know, I, I, I kind of resent uh, this. Yeah. Even though, anyway, like, so, and by the way, 
this whole sports and tribalism and patriotism, like it's all very, yeah. like very much interrelated. I'm kind of embarrassed. Like I'm not a sports fan. Like, I'm a fan of sports. I played rugby. You know, I can sit down and watch a game of anything that's a good athletic contest, especially rugby. And by the way, after playing rugby, watching American football is kind of boring. You know, it was a commercial break, but it's it's not just the athletic contest. It's all the symbolism and emotions and the feels around it that people get and the tribalism and the promotion of it is so thorough. Like, I am embarrassed to say that I, you say Chicago Bulls. I know that's a basketball team. And I mean, like, yeah, maybe when I was a kid, Michael Jordan. I don't even want to. Like, why? 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 And this should be a, like a big warning sign for every human being on earth, but Americans especially. Why can I name a dozen pro athletes? And, and probably more like a few dozen. And, and I still can't name the first uh, 13 presidents of the United States. And George Washington was not the first president of the United States it, it, because the first presidents were under the Articles of Confederation. The Constitution that we're under today was an Ill, illegal coup. You know, but, and it's maddening. Why yeah. do I know these brands? It is pervasive in commercialism and propaganda. It's disgusting. Yeah. Well, anyway, it might not have been the Chicago Bulls, but the guy I went to watch it with was from Bears. Chicago. It was Chicago Bears is the maybe football it was a, Maybe it was the Chicago Bears. Anyway, and this would have been probably 2018, maybe even 2019, but behold, before all the uh, Black Lives Matter stuff kicked off. And they did the whole running up the pitch, kneeling thing. And I remember making the observation that, that, that the, the players who were doing that were mostly black or mixed race. But the fans who were watching the game were mostly white. And the attitude amongst the fans seemed to be a bit like the attitude. It, it was easier rather than confront it or challenge it, which nobody wanted to do because nobody wanted to be considered racist. It was easier just to ignore it. Yeah, exactly. Nobody wanted to be that guy. So it was as though everyone just sort of turned a blind eye to it they didn't approve it and they didn't disapprove it and that was the feeling i got and it was like it was, i won't go as far as to say living a lie but it was just sort of it was easier to to brush it under the carpet than confront it and obviously now the landscapes change rather a lot more than it was then and the whole kneeling thing's become something else but i just found that reaction quite interesting and i think that's one of the reasons why perhaps we're in this difficult situation we're in now is that so few people have been prepared to take the other side of the argument to to black lives matter and to kneeling you know because really when you're arguing with black lives matter you're arguing with marxism <laughs> you're not arguing with well racism, no 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 that's that's, that's not racism. true that's, that's no 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 that, that's not fair I mean, it, it's 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 I mean, that would be like calling the anti-war movement that I was a part of communist because one of the main organizations trying to co-opt it was communist. And it's not to say that there weren't other communists in the ranks of the anti-war movement. And if, if what you're talking about is the association with the specific leaders and co-founders of the Black Lives Matter organization, uh, yeah, they, they've identified as, as Marxists, and that's that's fine. Like, you know, the, they're they're entitled to their ideology as long as they don't force They'll it on anybody else. They'll be libertarians in 15 years. But, 
Yeah, they're gonna. Yeah, and I don't. I, I actually, I'm very confident in that. That young, idealistic political activists will eventually find libertarianism. I mean, that's that's how a lot of us I know, got. I here. mean, all all libertarians start out as Marxists. Right now, well, now what you point out, yeah, right now, <laughs> no, but, uh, well, but most of us start out as some kind of statist, that's for sure. Uh, and, it, and then it's hard to tell when it went from the when you get to the libertarian perspective, you go, well, so a minarchist just wants socialized, uh, the really important things the government does. That doesn't make sense. Uh, but if, with Black Lives Matter, you're right to point out that there is a kind of uh, legitimate, uh, you know, victim card being played when minorities say, pay attention to how minorities are being disadvantaged. And you don't, and, and so it's, it makes it really effective for a Marxist to sneak ideology in there. But that's not the movement. And I think it's really unfair to paint the entire Black Lives Matter movement as a whole with the brush of Marxism and corruption in connection to the Democratic Party, that you could paint the organization that bears that name. Because the movement is a lot bigger than that. And there are plenty of people using it to call for you know, various things. But in terms of reform of the police and justice system to act more like Black Lives Matter, that's the core of it. And, and in that sense, I'm not, I mean, I'm not an active participant, but you could call me a member because I, I support that. I think that the legal and justice system in the United States very clearly in all of the statistics that you can analyze uh, disadvantages of minorities and empowers racism. I mean, even today, actually, this came up in, in uh, prep for the show today for Adam versus the man. There are racist gangs that have infiltrated the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. So the government is actually hiring racists and giving them qualified immunity. If you don't have a problem with that, you know, you really need to check your humanity. The answer to uh, Black Lives Mattering and all these problems does not lie in state solutions of that much, Correct. I'm sure. And yes, state absolutely. legislation will create many more problems <laughs> than, it is, than, than it will solve. Well, and, well generally uh, speaking, so yes, in calling but... for state, some kind of state reform, I, I think it's very misguided and it's going to lead to more state controls, yeah. more intervention, more economic inequality, more things done in the name of one thing, which are actually in the name of something else. And I think it's, it's, it's got all sorts of very worrying implications done under the pretext of doing something else. And I would be very aware of it. Well, so that, that, that might be true in the larger case, but the core message is about reducing the viciousness, the, the violations of self-ownership committed by government. You might say it, it's, it's making a racial distinction, but that's a racial distinction that already existed. They're not really making that. And, and as, as a libertarian, like, I, I don't want to say, like, I'm, I, you know, if you want to define a member of Black Lives Matter as anybody who wants police reform to happen like that, then I'm a member. Sure, call me a member. I don't care. I'd like to think of myself more as a, a you know, a distant supporter ally where, you know, I support the core cause, but there's a lot tied up in it that I don't support. But we should at least be 
supportive of it as a whole because the core message of it is very much in line with libertarianism in terms of reducing the violence of the state. There are a lot of ways it could get misguided, as you say, and it's, it's, it's a very real, in fact, I don't even want to say it's a real possibility. It's definitely part of how we measure the negative consequences of Black Lives Matter, that they get legislation passed that gets government more power. But when it comes to the things that we agree on wholeheartedly, like decriminalization, ending the drug war, lowering incarceration in the United States, reducing police power, ending qualified immunity, even if that happens by law, I mean, if government writes a new law and it says police don't have qualified immunity, I think that's, that's still a reduction in the coercion and overall violence of the state that we should celebrate and be willing to work with people on, even when we uh, you know, disagree with them ideologically. Let me use that as a segue into a topic that I know Simon, whose channel this is, wants us to discuss, which is the legalization or the illegality of drugs. And the reason I say that's a segue, I, I don't know the statistics, but I do know that they're horrible. <laughs> good, Hold good, on, I'm not, uh, I'm not good, ready good, for good this topic. Yeah, give, me, give, me, give, me, give me a second here. And, and, and for the, for the sake of, of for the, I know for YouTube, we don't want to get Simon in trouble here. That, uh, you know, I, and I deal with this. So I did a show today centered on cannabis. That's why this is in our studio. And even there, we can't talk about it uh, fully openly. Like as, as much as we want to celebrate where we are with legalization, uh, I have to tell you officially for, for YouTube purposes that this is a water pipe and I am smoking tobacco out of it for theatrical purposes and that's all that i'm doing because otherwise would be a violation of youtube community standards so what is that i remember we used to go when i went to thailand on backpacking in would have been 1987 that's how long ago it was we used to have those made out of bamboo what is that made of is that made of plastic that, that... yeah it's silicon it's a, it's a it's a really cool rubber compound so what's that sort of like what's that uh, sort of pink thing at the top it's my lighter, buddy. A little, every, a little every water pipe needs one of these, yeah. Oh, yeah. It says LB. I thought it was the Bitcoin logo that was on there. No, lighter, buddy. LB for lighter, buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good, good. <laughs> good. So, silicon thing. Plug, so is it ever I'm, so slightly I'm... soft? Is it ever yeah. so slightly soft to touch that? Yeah. So, yeah, oh. this is the same material, and it's kind of spongy, and the rest of the piece is, is just soft because it's, you know, thicker. But this is, this is a separate product. This uh, the lighter buddy comes on and off. You can find that. <laughs> so the reason I, I said that was a segue was the the I know, I don't know what the numbers are, but I just know there's a, a colossally disproportionate number of black people who've been put in prison, incarcerated for marijuana related offences, which in this day and age just seems insane. So. I mean, why don't we talk about that? Why don't we talk about the legalization of drugs? Because you are actually ahead of, if, if like our government, like over the last four years, it's been, it's spent about two and a half years fighting over Brexit. And now it's been totally taken up with um, Corona. So it just means it's not done anything else that it's supposed to have been doing for about three or four years. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure well, that hold on, it hold, hold on. It is, all that. It is, I, 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 I got, Dominic, I'm sorry I got to interrupt on that one point because this is like something that I'm really excited about every time I get to point out as a libertarian when someone says, government's not working. Well, did the rich keep getting richer 
and everybody else keep getting poor, then government is working exactly as designed. Well, absolutely. But, it, but I mean, even by their standards, even by our standards, whoever's standards, it's been bogged down in these two great battles. I'm pretty sure that marijuana by now would be as legal here as it, in the, as it is in the States, were it not for COVID and Brexit getting in the way. There was all sorts of noise about it in 2016. Um, uh, that, that, sorry, tell me about the advances just, in the state. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting, though, to think in terms of Brexit. Uh, you know, I, I would, instead of saying that the government is bogged down, I would say that the government in, 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 uh, has used these big distractions effectively to keep you distracted from all of the other vicious rackets of government. Now, in the United States, we have recreational cannabis uh, legal in 11 states and, and some form of medical in 33. But here's the scary thing uh, about that, Dominic. At least from the numbers that I saw today in, in my research, the arrests for cannabis possession in the U.S., simple possession, have actually gone up from 2016, 17 to 18. Uh, we didn't get the numbers How for 19. It's insane. And you think about how, yeah, how are they doing? Well, a lot of places, they're now changing their tactics to bust people for regulatory violations. And they're going after other people. And these states where it's still illegal are busting more people to make up for the states that are busting less. And so here's the thing. like I, I, You mentioned the racial uh, aspect of this in the United States. You know, you say, is the drug war racist? Well, it's a, it, the war itself, does it have, if racism is a belief, how can you say that a set of government policies and practices has, has a belief? You know, is, is it racist? Does it have discrimination built in? Say, There's no race in the laws. Well, yeah, that's true. But there, you, you go to the numbers of the outcome, and it's obviously hugely racist. And this doesn't even mean that police necessarily are racist. Now, at one point when I was in the Marines, I almost became a cop. So I've thought through this from my perspective, and I was thinking about it in a story we saw recently out of Minneapolis, where drones were being used by police to bust nude beachgoers. And this story in Minneapolis was with cops using drones to bust people at a nude beach. And before that, they were going in in person. And a lot of the complaints were that they were going after black beachgoers before white beachgoers. Now you want to think, oh, those racist sons of bitches cops, oh my gosh, how dare they target people for being black? And I go, well, that's not necessarily the case. This could all be sort of unintentional holdover racism. If I'm a cop and I go onto the scene and I see that there's, there's a big mob of people and I got to arrest two dudes and one's black and one's white. If I arrest the white dude first, the mob is gonna go nuts. If I arrest the black dude first, uh, I can arrest both of them peacefully. Does that make me the racist or does that responding to racial uh, incentives in the circumstance, right? You know, same thing with the court system, the legal system. Is that correct? System. Is that correct? The mob, is the, the mob would go, because what I'm seeing here now, is if a policeman accosts a black person, the mob will go. Right. No, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not. So there, there are. I'm, I'm raising this as a hypothetical where you're correct that in okay. generally speaking today, there's more of a response, but not necessarily. I'm saying like, because the overall effect for a cop 
is that if you bust a white dude, he is more likely to get leniency in the courts. You are more likely to get in trouble if you screw something up arresting a white dude than, than a black dude, right? The general mob sentiment as manifest through the rest of the policy and government is such that, yeah, the incentive for that cop, whether they are racist or not, it's, it's easier. It's, it is, as a cop, it's easier to bust a black dude than a white dude in America. That is still the case overall. You know, and you want to, people want to argue, you know, how significant is that? Doesn't matter. My point is that when you look at the final outcome of this, I don't want to blame individual cops. All cops are racist just because we have some racist cops infiltrating uh, police departments in the United States. And, and there have been KKK uh, that have historically infiltrated police departments and gangs that have infiltrated and operated police departments for the, you know, running guns and drugs and things like that and, and human trafficking even. But the, the final number is that if you look at uh, blacks and Hispanics in the United States, and, and, and I, I, I'm, these are, you know, approximate numbers, forgive me if I'm not being precise here, uh, make up about 30% of the population and about 45% of drug arrests. And it's worse when you look at drug incarcerations. And then when you look at sentences, you go, well, yeah, something's wrong here. And maybe it's poverty rather than it could be, you know, you could tease out the effect of poverty and say maybe it's mostly poverty. Well, why does poverty trend around racial lines in the United States? And this is where, you know, I, I will hand it to the liberals in pointing this out. You can't analyze this issue, these kinds of issues without acknowledging all of the intersectionality of this. But if you're looking at it objectively and honestly, you have to come to the conclusion, well, hey, stop the violence, stop the coercion, get government out of the picture, everybody's gonna be happier. And a lot of liberals are in uh, you know, deep delusions about that. So how close are we to, so this, what is it, is it 50 or 52 states in America? <laughs> well, if it was Barack Obama, it would be 57, his famous slip of the tongue. But we have, we have 50 states and... 50 states. Uh, I used to know, and, 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 I used and to know the numbers off the top of my head for principalities. No, we don't have principalities. We have territories and, uh, you know, there's Puerto Rico. Um, how many of them have what? Sure. Uh, so, and, and how many of those 50 states is marijuana legal now? 11 for recreational, 33 for medical. And, and so here's, here, okay. if I may point how out do one more thing about- how, how do they reconcile, how do they reconcile the dealing? Yeah, they don't. Like it's still largely criminal in a lot of places. I mean, it's, it's become a lot more practical. But so to, 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 your, to, to your question, there's a bigger point that you know, occurred to me this morning in doing this research, that if, if arrests for, for cannabis are going up for, you know, for a lot of, you know, overall for Americans, but for, you know, for people like me, you know, privileged white dudes who can afford to pay the government of Arizona $150 a year to get my right back as a privilege to be able to buy cannabis at a store like a normal human sane adult living in a free society. Uh, it, it means that I just fell for the racket. The arrests are still, uh, are still going up. So they're just arresting other people. And a lot of it is traffickers, you know, as, as, as you know, we mentioned earlier, that they're just like if, if they say, well, like, like Austin, Texas, uh, even though Texas doesn't count uh, as, as a legal or medical state, 
Uh, it has CBD, I believe, is the only you know kind of progress they have CBD uh, for medical in Texas. Uh, but Austin, Texas, the city, very very progressive, said that, uh, and also relatively libertarian, even by conventional standards, uh, that police there are not even going to issue citations. But you still have cops going out on patrol, working the same number of hours trying to justify the same budgets and militarization of police, they're going to find other excuses to bust people. Some of this goes to other drugs, but if just cannabis arrests are increasing, it's, it was very slight. Like it was uh, <clears throat> something like 647,000 to 653,000 to 659,000 over 2016, 17, 18. So like radical increases, really more or less the same. You know, it's not, you want to ask those thousands of extra people every year about their lives ruined it's going to make a big difference but it's you know the the overall cannabis arrests in america are, are still relatively flat and that is that that should be really disturbing so when you say like how close are we and, and you that, that that's something that i want to have a sense of and we have we have to acknowledge that a lot of the legalization government didn't just become cool about this they just found another way to capitalize on this tax us and rip us off and still arrest the same number of people so to quote winston churchill i would say we are at the end of the beginning of the end of the war on drugs this is this is act one the expectations have shifted and while enforcement is still a problem we're ready to move on to act two uh, we've got Act One included an explosion of dispensaries and legal grows and a lot more people having safe, reliable access to medicine who need it as cannabis, but to actually start scaling down the viciousness of the drug war, eh, apparently not, not quite there yet. And uh, I think that's Act Two, the, the, the beginning of the middle may be upon us. Uh, and, and how many years before cocaine is legal well I, I, it's, it's legal here now you ask where in the united states are we coming from uh while we are in the united states geographically we are in the soon to be independent nation of gardenia i own 11 acres in the mountains of arizona about an hour west of ash fork and excuse me a flagstaff near ash fork and we are going to be, we have declared our intention to declare sovereignty next Independence Day. And uh, as the tra transition government of uh, Gardenia, uh, which is me, I am uh, King Adam, Tra oh, well, if you want to call me God Emperor King Adam Charles Kokesh the first, you know, that's, you can add the God Emperor if you like. But you know, I, 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 I can tell you there is no enforcement of drug laws here in Gardenia. Uh, the Garden of Freedom, Gardenia for short, uh, I'll spare you the long title because it would take two or three minutes to read the whole thing. But uh, it's the bountiful, allodial, sovereign, proprietarian monarchy of the Garden of Freedom. Uh, yes, it's, we, we, we respect everybody's absolute freedom here. And for, for cocaine... Realistically, you know, for, realistically, how much... Yeah, yeah, no, I'm getting, I'm getting you to that. you want to declare an independent state? <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, and you know, there, I, there know. Are, I mean, it's, how realistic is it wanting to declare an independent state? How much chance do you really have of doing that? Well, the United States got here that way, so I think our chances are pretty good. Uh, it's, a, it's been very popular. There haven't been a lot of Americans saying we should, we should rejoin Great Britain. 
So I, I'd like to say that uh, declaring independence is, is a pretty popular idea. And now, as far as micronations go, they have been done. Well, yeah, with, but it didn't. Uh, it didn't work out when 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 South Carolina decided it wanted independence from the union. It didn't oh, work out you, quite so well. Did you it? got that. You got me there. You got me there. Yeah, declaring independence does. Uh, and, and when when you do it to preserve the institution of slavery, I'm not going to cry over your defeat. They didn't but do in, it. To, in, they didn't do it to. They didn't. You, they didn't do it to preserve the institution of slavery. That's pretty clear in all of the historical quotes. But you know, we if you wanted to go no, into that, they did we it because they were sick of paying. They were. They, they oh, did there it were plenty they of were, other reasons. Yeah, no, I'm not. It's not. I'm not saying it was as simple as and, and straightforward as that. And it's it's worth re-examining the history of this. Um, well, but, I've uh, written about it at great length, and the reason was they they they, they were paying ninety percent of um, of federal tax revenue and not receiving it, uh, uh, not receiving the what they paid in in kind. But the so how do you the, how do you explain the direct they, quotes? How, how do you explain? And I'm not saying that that's not a factor, but how do you explain the direct quotes from the leadership of the Confederacy, the generals, the 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 political leaders saying that? You know that we are doing this to preserve the institution of slavery. Is there some direct quotes about that? No, at, at, at the point at which they declared independence, uh, at the the uh, Nixon had uh, Nixon, you know, yeah, Lincoln had said it the was not his, in, his intention the other, uh, to. Lincoln had said repeatedly at that point that it was not his intention to impose to to change slavery laws in the South. The, the reason they initially wanted succession was not to preserve slavery. Uh, it was it was to it was it was a, a war about taxation. And in fact, in I think it was 1863, the Confederacy sent representatives to Britain and said, "If you recognise Confederate independence, we will abolish slavery." And and the 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 thing was they they it was a it was a war about taxes mm. and the 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 whole slavery moniker has been put on after the event by the winning side in order to justify oh, the use of force. Oh, of course. Oh, yes. Oh, no, of course. And I, I think we would agree, more importantly, that it is unquestionable that Lincoln was not motivated by freeing the slaves in any way. He could have won, he could have, he could have bought and freed all of them for the less reason than the war he, Lincoln, uh, The reason Lincoln um, made the Emancipation Act was not for the benefit of slaves, otherwise you wouldn't have had segregation in the years afterwards. The reason for the Emancipation Act is that he was trying to create social discord in the South and create rebellions in the South so that they had to for draw reconstruction resources away from the battlefront back to dealing with civil war at, uh, at home. But anyway, right. this is all by the by. Uh -huh. the point all is right, so with what we're doing the, the, here with micronations. <laughs> yeah. So no, let me yeah, let me I'll mean, finish. How, I'll, I'll, how finish. I'll finish. Because I do I'll, think I'll, I'll I think the future is micronations. I really do. Yes, but localization. Micronations aren't going to agree to it, but I just don't see macronations agreeing to micronations. Of course, there's going to be some resistance. Ah, well, oh, that you know. So that would be that would be an interesting experiment if if a black community in America so. said. I think that would be you know, like really of making yeah. Paper. Yeah, but okay, I'm 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 half Jewish, half German, so there, come at me, bro. Um, you know, <laughs> but with yeah, uh, you'd with rank what we're lower doing... on the on the scale of 
on the, on the no, no, but Jews, too low. no, no, so I well, no, German is the lowest, but Jewish is the highest, you know, it's thanks not, to the mythology of anymore, World War II. Uh, really, Jews, oh. I'm afraid that the the that that particular victim card has lost its power. Shoot, it's, it's right. still well, powerful, but it's not as powerful yeah. as it was. And there are, there are <laughs> no, many more yeah, that, that yeah. will get more woke points than you. Yeah, no, you're right. In in the uh, social justice warrior point system, yeah, no, it is it is messed up. Uh, but no, I think I think what what we're doing here is as peacefully as we can establish uh, our sovereignty and assert uh, our freedom with this property. And you know, there there are three examples I, I'd cite as inspirations for this. And I hope you're familiar with the first one uh, because it's a, a you know British military fort from World War II. Uh, Sealand, where they they took it over, they took over an abandoned, yeah. So they took over an abandoned sea fort, and there's been, uh, you know, basically a small isolated community living at sea and 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 asserting and living sovereignty. Community is about five part, people, but yeah. Well, yeah, okay, fair enough. But you know, and it, it's fluctuated over time, and and there have been violations of that sovereignty, but they've more or less lived that way. And then you have you know examples like uh, Molossia in in Utah here in the United States where it's, it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek exercise in going, well, how much sovereignty can I take peacefully? And the guy owns a piece of property, and he gives the local government uh, foreign aid. Every year he pays foreign aid to the county government that just so happens to be the same amount as his property taxes. And you know, then, then you have you know, civil disobedience like the Conch Republic, where they got a checkpoint defeated and changed policy. And so I think we can combine you know, the good-humored nature uh, of, of some of those, like the Conch Republic and, you know, the friendliness of Melosia, but also the seriousness of Sealand and say, oh, I've got 10 acres here. Um, and, and, you know, we have access by private roads. Uh, you know, we'd like to, yes, please, I'd like to do, you know how the founders of the United States did that declare independence thing? We're doing that, uh, but we're going to do it peacefully. We're going to do it in an orderly process. We're going to do it in communication and, and cooperation with the, uh, the American authorities at, at all relevant levels. And we're going to see, well, how much sovereignty will they practically give us when we say we want all of it? Uh, but as for your, your bigger question first about, uh, well, I don't think this is the bigger question, but your little question about cocaine. Um, I, I feel like the legalization of cannabis in the United States or decriminalization overall is kind of like taking the big first layer off of the dam. And already we have seen in Colorado and Denver County and in the city of Oakland, California, decriminalization of psilocybin mushrooms. And for anybody who knows not only the recreational, spiritual, and, and meditative value of psilocybin, but also the uh, therapy value, specifically in clinical settings for things like PTSD, this is a major step forward. And, and, and I see this kind of as like, uh, you know, the nether is an actual crack in the dam, you know, and, and it's coming with MDMA and, and, and mushrooms because these are ones that have, uh, you know, and like you said about worshiping the military. How, how dare you tell me that I saw my buddies die in the sands of Iraq for our freedom and I don't have the freedom to medicate how I see fit in a way that's entirely safe and doesn't affect anybody else? How dare you tell me that I can't experiment with mushrooms and MDMA when they have been shown to have clinical results 
for treatment of PTSD. And so I think we're at the point where that card can be played. It was actually a friend of mine who's an army veteran who led the effort for uh, psilocybin decriminalization in Denver. And it was you know, a big part of the case that they were making where they were able to do it by referendum, by the voters in Denver. So I don't, I don't want to make a prediction of how long it's actually going to take. You know, I've, I've been staying for a few years. We're at like, you know, three or four election cycles, you know, six to eight years before we get uh, Congress to actually take decisive action. Uh, the, the Democratic Party of the United States, which pretends to be pro-freedom when it comes to drug use and health decisions, uh, just decided to not include marijuana legalization in their plank, and it's not part of Joe Biden's platform. So it's, it's going to be a significant amount of time even before we see that. But once you get to that, you know, the, 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 the protective outer layer of the dam, so to speak, of the drug wars there, you know, and the cracks are spreading and boom, then it's just going to be like, all right, we're not, yeah, okay, we're giving up this whole idea. We're going to actually respect your right as an individual to decide what you put in your own body. Sorry, we're done. We're, the drug war thing is a thing of the past. I, I, you know, what, 10, 20 years, uh, I'm, I'm confident it's on something of that scale. Who's going to win the election? The American Socialist Party, uh, either the Democrat wing or the Republican wing, will, will, will most likely win. I'm still hopeful that uh, Joe Jorgensen, as the Libertarian nominee, will, uh, will pull something out at the last minute and be able to have at least a breakthrough year for freedom in the United States with the Libertarian Party. But uh, I know who's going to lose, the American people, especially right now with all the manipulations. Uh, even between Biden and Trump, I really couldn't call it. It looks very, very, very strong for Biden right now, but we've seen this thing before in 2016 when uh, Trump pulled out the Electoral College victory over Hillary Clinton. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised. The president, the power of the incumbency means that you can, you can fuck with reality pretty hard. You know, if Trump wants to say, you know, fabricate a, a new virus with a new threat and therefore the elections have to be postponed. And I'm now writing everybody, you know, there's a reason he wanted his name on all the relief checks. You know, so if, if he were to pull something out at the last minute, it, it wouldn't surprise me. But I, I don't, uh, as, as optimistic as I am for Joe Jorgensen having a breakout year, you know, cracking five or maybe even 10%, uh, I don't think we're at that Excuse me, we're ready for that kind of shift uh, in the United States. How yeah. well has, how well has um, America handled the coronavirus? Well, what do, what do you mean by America? Because if you go by the American government, they've performed extremely well. The rich have gotten richer. The poor have gotten poorer. They've shut down the economy. They're rebooting it in a way that is going to further consolidate uh, money and power. So the government, in terms of serving its sponsors, this is like, hey, this is open season for them. This is almost as good as a war, you know. And the military-industrial complex is actually benefiting from this directly in a lot of ways with activations, mobilizations, things like that. In Israel, they're calling up military army reservists to help fight COVID-19. So in terms of like, you know, th th this is a feeding frenzy of fear. A lot of people are, are profiting off of this around the government racket. They are doing extremely well. Um, and, you know, in terms of how are the American people handling it, I don't know. Not as good as Germany right now, from what I hear, where there were just 
uh, I, I don't know, the weird conflicting reports. Some people said it was 17,000, but that it was actually millions of Germans all together in the streets protesting the coronavirus shutdowns. I've been to some protests here in the United States, uh, in, well, in Phoenix. Uh, they, they, they were, they, I'm glad that they were there, but they're not that big. We have uh, gym owners in New Jersey breaking down the boards in front of their gyms from when they were shut down to let gym goers go and work out in civil disobedience. Um, but we're, we're kind of falling for the mask thing. And, and I think in a way, government is laughing at, at America, the people uh, going, ah, look, we can turn most of you into zombies and get you to bully other zombies into this silly mask compliance. Uh, but I don't know. I haven't seen any really decisive analysis to tease that out. I've got my experiences. When I go to Walmart in Prescott, uh, which is a more rural and more conservative community that that Walmart is serving, uh, only about uh, half of the customers were wearing masks. It might be more now. They changed policy. Who knows? It all goes back and forth. But then I go to Flagstaff, a uh, sort of liberal college town. I go to Walmart there. I went there with my buddy last week. We were literally the only two people in the store without masks. And people, you know, we didn't get accosted. You know, and nobody can force you to wear a mask. You can say, I've got a medical exemption, whatever. Um, but uh, we got some funny looks. And, you know, just being two confident dudes, we're not the kind of guy that you come out with, with, with shade, you know, in public. You know, I'm not, I'm not too worried about getting assaulted in public. You know, I, I know how to carry myself. I'm a, I'm a good-sized dude. Um, but, uh, yeah, by and large, you know, I, I, it looks like the American people are falling for this overall from my general retail experience and what I'm seeing. And, you know, we're debating masks as opposed to is the virus an excuse for the government to add nine trillion dollars of liquidity to the economy, which is how they steal from us through inflation in the central banking system. And then Black Lives Matter comes along as a protest. I think this whole Corona thing, at least in the United States, was at least largely motivated by people who conspired to make it a trap for Donald Trump. The, le the left, the Democrats, the media, the left wing of the uh, American Socialist Party competing with the right wing of the American Socialist Party for dominance. They set a trap for Donald Trump where he had the right attitude at the beginning, like, hey, it's, it's really just a funky off-season flu. You know, let's support sick people and the rest of us can, you know, you take responsibility for our own health and go about our lives as normal, and let's get resources to people who need it. And then, oh, no, an actual state of emergency. And he thought he could get out of that trap, but then he slipped on the banana peel called George Floyd, and now he's in a really tough spot going into the, into the election. So I know that's just a little more, but I thought you would appreciate that, that other analysis as well. So when I look at the world, I see two powerful narratives and on the one hand you know gold is in a bull market at the moment yep. bitcoin has done incredibly Finally. well so there are these forces for you know gold and bitcoin are honest money they're sound money they're you know the money of libertarians and accompanying those bull markets are all the all the libertarian narratives and you know, there's a real anti-statist um, feeling, anti-mask, not so much anti-mask, but, you know, anti-nanny state, anti-excess tax, anti-all of these things. But on the other hand, with every evolution, with every 
little turn that the world makes, the state seems to be grabbing more power. And oh my goodness me, with COVID-19, has the state grabbed more power? Um, you know, it's just like, we've got this thing in England at the moment going on where 50% of your dinner is bought, but you go out to a restaurant, it's called like, I can't remember what it's called, it's called something like Eat to Help or something like that. And on the one hand, there's this man, gas, massive anti-obesity campaign going on. On the other hand, if you go out to a nice restaurant on Monday and Wednesday, the government will pay for half of your dinner. I've had to point this out with government, like, and it's the same thing in the UK. These are the people you're trusting with health advice? The people who told you that cannabis was a health threat? The people who told you to eat carbs as the base of the food pyramid and cholesterol and pharmaceutical, like how we are, it's, it's insane. But then, but like, you know, what point did the government start telling you what to eat for dinner? But anyway, it's just, it's, it's all like extent, extensions of the tentacles. So as I say, on one side, you've got these freedom narratives. On the other side, you've got these greater control narratives. And we're still stuck in this position where you know, the nature of the tax system is that you are 50% owned. Um, you know, 50% of your labor is, is taken. You are 50% owned. You only own 50% of yourself. So, so the question I want to ask you is, is, with these two narratives going on, what's the future over the next five years? Where are we, yes. are we is it worse or better? Okay, that's, I, I you know, it's funny. I, as, as a news head and, and a pundit, uh, I, I've been very good lately, especially around COVID, at, at predicting a lot of the midterm as opposed to short-term or long-term trends around this. You know, the, the, the economic consequences of the lockdowns and shutdowns. Not that I'm particularly prescient, but it, it seems like a good application of my worldview. I, in terms of five years, to me, that's like in between midterm and long-term in a way that I don't want to make a prediction. So if I may, Dominic, humbly answer your question with the, the part of my understanding of the world that I think is most relevant to how I would try, but applies better to the long term, is that you can look at the world as getting uh, more statist, right? More centrally controlled, more dominated by, by governments and, and bankers and uh, massive centralized power institutions. But then I look at the work of, of Professor Steven Pinker, the Harvard professor. He's a liberal, and he has different interpretations of this, and he gives government a lot of credit. But what he has proven irrefutably, academically, is that not only are we living right now in the most peaceful times in human history, but that over the course of human history, violence has followed a very consistent curve of decline. And none of the things that are driving that, I mean, even if you give the state credit, uh, but to me, I look at technology, communications, understanding, education, not government education, but real education, that, uh, and, and just improvement of, of economic fortunes, you know, rising all boats, uh, you know, as the tide of humanity rises with technology and productivity, violence goes down. And I could rant about this for hours, I'll spare you. But you could look at these two curves, right? You could say, well, violence is going down, but government is going up in size. And so I came up with a little thought exercise to, uh, to, to make this point. And it, it, it's, uh, would you rather, it's a question, well, would you rather live under a giant government that employs half of your country's population, 
but is entirely peaceful and exerts just enough coercion to maintain that economic power. And what it does in government programs more or less approximates what the market would provide. And, and it, it, there's no war, no civil liberties violations. But uh, yeah, the, the, the people are kind of okay with the government, these industries, whatever, being run by the government so that it's, it's running half the economy. Or would you rather live with a tiny government that only employs 1% of the population, uh, but murders a thousand random people every day or murders uh, another 1% of the country's population every day. Obviously, you'll take the big peaceful government over the small violent government. And I think that gets us to an understanding of what is the actual cost of government. It's how much it violently or coercively or forcibly pulls us off from our potential in a voluntary free market society of creating value. How many lives does it destroy? How much does it reduce quality of life? And I think it's, it, there are a lot of things it does as it grows that does that. But uh, when you look at secession uh, as the trend, as the future of micronations, I don't think if they, can, if they can't convince their trigger pullers, their enforcement class of cops and soldiers to go after peaceful people, declaring their independence peacefully, openly. I don't think they're gonna be able to continue the racket. So I'm very optimistic for the long term. I think that curve, that decline of violence is gonna to continue to the point where you know governments are gonna rely more on deception, like with COVID, right? Like I said earlier, COVID, it's like a war, right? In terms of a big government profiteering racket that's very destructive, but uh, less people are dying from COVID than from wars historically. It's a less vicious racket. The global war on terror was less vicious than Vietnam, was less vicious than World War II. I think that general decline that Pinker proves over his human history is the more important curve. It's not just my taste. I believe that uh, this, is, this is an application of logic and reason and really weighing what's important very carefully. And, and that makes me optimistic in the end rationally obviously. good stuff well on that note adam if people want to find out more about you and what you do how do they how would they do that thank you so much for the opportunity dominic the book i wrote when i was in jail for civil disobedience in in, in washington dc is freedom you can get it for free in every digital format possible on my website you can read it right there although i'm sure simon is our responsible channel host is going to get that in the notes thefreedomline.com uh, i've got a youtube channel with a quarter million subs although my producer now says we are the most shadow banned channel on youtube you can judge the numbers for yourself but check it out that's youtube.com slash adam kokesh and uh, you can find that all my other social media stuff i've been i've been pretty active on twitter lately that's where i enjoy engaging in the conversation I see almost all of my mentions there at Adam Kokesh. So find me wherever you can through thefreedomline.com. But please, most importantly, download this book. It's free in every digital format possible, including audiobook at thefreedomline.com. Dominic, hey, thanks so much for the opportunity and to Simon for putting this together. And, and I, if I may, I'd just like to end on one other note to say that doing independent media like this to, to realize 
the potential of the great technology that is available to all of us requires more than just a bunch of loud mouths on the internet. It takes an active and engaged audience. So I hope you'll share this video if you enjoyed it and do whatever it takes for whatever independent media you're watching that doesn't enjoy corporate or government sponsorship. Do what you can to support us. Good stuff. Well, thank you very much, Adam. And if you want to find out more about me, uh, at Dominic Frisbee is my handle on Twitter. And I've got two YouTube channels, one for comedy, one for economic stuff. And you should read all my books too. They're brilliant. Thank you very much. This is California Gold. I've been Dominic Frisbee. We'll see you again soon.